hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of IHC Talk. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm very glad to be joined once again by my Chromatin siblings, Dr. Sonam Lugavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome, guys. Hey, thank you so much. It's so good to see you both and our special guest of honor. Yes. Dr. Dr. Michael Arnold, the man who needs no introduction. <laughs> well, oh, good hey, to see you guys. You know, before we start, Sonam, we should probably, we all know you're in Houston, Texas, and you guys have been through quite a bit with weather lately. How are you doing? I'm good. At least I showered, which is, <laughs> I got an opportunity to shower. You wouldn't think that that would be an issue in, you know, in 2021, but um, it was awful. Oh. It was brutal, but well, you know, whatever. We survived. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're doing well. Good and to see you too. You're sort of one of our guests today because we're talking about HemePath. And our other guest is Dr. Kamran Mirza. He's a hematopathologist at Loyola University, where he's an associate professor. He's also the director of the Masters in Medical Laboratory Science and the medical director of molecular pathology. And in addition to all that, he's a co-founder of pathelective.com. He's a co-founder of PathPod and our good friend. How's it going, Kamran? Good, thank you. Better now that I'm talking to you guys. Everything's great. Thanks for having me. So you guys have both been incredibly prolific of late. Sonam, you've had a number of papers recently that we've seen many, many tweets about. And Kamran, we've we've had a chance to talk to both of you guys on PathPod before and hear about your backstories. Maybe, Kamran, you could take like a minute. I don't even know this is possible. Can you tell us all of the amazing things that you've been involved with that you've launched in the last year? Go. That's very sweet. It's, it's very, very possible because there aren't that many. But it's basically like because of people like you guys. I mean, you know, the teams that have come together to create some new stuff. So we obviously like, you know, pretty much all of us have been like relatively part of Path Elective, which, you know, I guess is the first thing. And then PathPod, which we're on, you know, which I think is fantastic. Um, I think that, you know, we've just, I, I was speaking to a bunch of like candidates, either for residency or for my MLS program. And today, actually, I was interviewing for the PathPod Beyond the, Beyond the Scope series. And I was talking to, uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but we were talking about like the opportunities that came up because of the pandemic. And we almost came to the point where we wanted to say thank you to the pandemic because of those opportunities. But then we stepped back and caught our senses and said, no right. way. We'll just yeah. hack one another. But it did It did really uh, give us all an ability to maybe have like some a pause in mental space initially, you know, before we were all zoomed out to death, which we are now, but, uh, and, you know, kind of be creative in ways that we didn't think of before. So lots of fun things and uh, basically good communication with excellent teams is, is what I'd say we've done. That's awesome. Carmen so, is very modest. <laughs> no, I'm just being honest, no. though. I mean, I'm just being honest. He's being he, is, modest. he is very modest. We can all attest to that. I heard you know, I'm going to be a little a bit more blunt. Yeah, I'm, I'm clean and I smell very good. You guys can't tell, but right now, <laughs> after four days of not being, but that was last week. So I've, you know, I've showered many times since then. It wasn't just <laughs> today. For it. Yeah. Just, just me getting out of bed every day. That's, I mean, that's about all I can accomplish this pandemic. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I have another take on this. So I think the pandemic has been good in terms of time management for me for two reasons. Um, one is obviously the work from home because I get to multitask 
it saves you a lot of time. And then the other thing is that, you know, uh, being a, a nice Middle Eastern woman that I am, uh, I had a very, very active social life before the pandemic, which is actually non-existent now. So, uh, you know, that also helps uh, in, in doing the academic stuff. Uh, so, you know, it's, I mean, I feel like the pandemic hasn't been all bad, but I definitely want it to be over. I'm so over it. I, yeah. It's awful. Well, speaking of the academic stuff, let's, let's take this opportunity to launch into our discussion of HemePath. Zanab, tell us about your recent paper in the British Journal of Hematology on AML and particularly NPM1 mutated AML. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity. Congratulations. Uh, We're so excited for you. You Honestly, I, you know, I said it on Twitter. She is a heme queen. She is no. such an inspiration. I love it. Like a paper every day. Literally people people direct message me and they're like, Dr. Lugavi has a paper every day. And I'm like, I know nobody can keep up with her, but I'm so proud that she's our friend. This is really, really awesome. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Well, I have to say one thing is I think a part of like the, the you know, uh, productivity is that MD, it's like the Emmy Anderson culture, right? There's a lot of team science. And, you know, by being um, the pathologist, obviously the, like the leukemia department at MD Anderson is extremely prolific and it's a very large department, right? So just out of collaboration with, with them, I get, you know, I get to be involved in a lot of projects. So it's not like I'm driving all of this, obviously like for a lot of these papers, I'm just a middle author. Uh, but, um, but it, you know, it's nice. You learn, you do stuff. I, I love it. Um, so the, you know, the, the NPM1 paper, um, I'll tell you the backstory. So basically the issue was that, um, you know, we, we've been doing AML MRD for a while now. Um, actually we had been doing it since I was a fellow and by we, I mean, pretty much Sawang and Jeff Jorgensen started the whole thing and then, you know, involved other people and taught other people. And there was, a, you know, it was like a very complex learning process because it's AML MRD, as you know, is not like BALL MRD. It's not standardized. There's a lot of variation. AML is very heterogeneous. It's not as easy to follow on quote. Just for background for some of the more junior folks in the audience, you're talking about minimal residual disease detection in patients that have had a previous diagnosis. And from what I understand about flow cytometry and why surgical pathologists are jealous of hematopathologists is because you can disassociate these tumors and look at single cells and see what combination of markers do they express. And the minimal residual disease detection is looking for rare events in the flow cytometer that meet the multiple parameters of that patient's previous leukemia. Is that a pretty reasonable description? That's perfect. You're a hematopathologist. That's it. <laughs> Done. Um, yeah, I think do you, know, you use it's, flow or molecular or both. We do both. We do both. And, you know, um, I think this is actually one of the questions that one person had brought up on Twitter, like, why even bother doing flow when you can do NGS? But the reality is that, you know, there are studies that have shown that, uh, you know, NGS and flow are complementary. Uh, it's not always they're both, you know, they're not always concordant. Um, you have sampling issues, sample adequacy issues. And then the other thing is that, um, you know, an institution like ours is pretty much protocol driven, right? So a lot of our patients get treated on trials and protocols and flow is, uh, you know, measurable residual disease detection by flow is part of our protocol. That's how we follow up these patients. Um, and it's a very powerful study. It's pretty much a powerful tool. It's pretty much, um, 
you know, one of the most, uh, most important prognostic indicators in determining outcome, whether a patient can achieve MRD negative uh, status. Anyhow, so, you know, it, it's a complex. And then uh, at first when we started doing this and, you know, when Saw and uh, Jeff had started doing this, uh, nobody had any experience really with AML-MRD detection. Um, and, you know, when you talk about AML-MRD uh, detection, there are various ways that we do it. So one is you look for the original, the phenotype of the original leukemia. That's the easiest way to do it. But AML is very heterogeneous. It can change um, the phenotype. It, you know, you can have emergence of various other clones that were not, you know, apparent at uh, initial diagnosis. So there are other things that we use as well. And one of those methods is, uh, or one of those, uh, I guess, approaches is looking for deviation from normal. So normal hematopoietic cells have very tightly regulated antigen expression. And it you know, varies by maturation stage, but it's very, very predictable. Uh, so when you look for deviation from normal, uh, one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things that we were noticing and we encountered is that in these, uh, you know, in, in all AMLs basically, but MPM1 is just much easier to study because uh, it's usually diploid cytogenetics, less complex um, genetic architecture. Uh, so we were seeing that, you know, these patients achieve NPM1 negative status, basically NPM1 wild type status, uh, but their flow is still abnormal. It's not quite normal. So if you go by deviation from normal, do you call that residual leukemia? But when the NPM1 becomes negative or becomes wild type, you're like, oh, maybe this is not residual leukemia. Uh, and basically what happens is that because the other co-mutations, the, the so-called age-related clonal hematopoiesis mutations persist, you have these abnormalities. It doesn't translate to residual AML. It's just one thing to recognize so that you don't overcall the flow as uh, being positive for residual AML. And then it had some interesting, uh, you know, correlations. Uh, most of it, you, you know, basically you could predict. So the higher the variant allelic frequency of the clonal hematopoiesis mutations, uh, the more likely you would have these flow cytometric abnormalities. Uh, the higher the number of persistent mutations, the more likely you would have these abnormalities. Uh, and it doesn't really predict uh, relapse. So it's very, very important to not uh, overcall it. And that's basically the, the summary. Just basically, I mean, it's an extremely powerful study. I know she, she meant the tool when she was talking about it, but it's actually also a very powerful study. It's a very important study for everyone, especially hematopathologists to know about. And Dr. Logavi does not know this yet, but I was going to ask if we could like do the HemePath Journal Club on that next month and invite her. Although she kind of runs HemePath Journal Club, but she'll be like a guest you know, on her own kind of uh, thing. But I was talking to Dr. Adil Ahmed and he was like, oh, we definitely need to do HemePath JC on this. And so... So you heard it here first, folks, maybe, you know, I don't know, depending on when this goes out, but, you know, there'll actually be a nice Twitter discussion on that paper, because I think it's fine. Oh, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love it. In a way, it's really great, right? Because NPM1, it's so funny, like the NPM1, I remember as a fellow, and I guess I'm going to date myself now, like at the time we were like playing around with IHC for NPM1, right? And uh, it was it's still not very rampant, like people don't necessarily do it in every single center. Uh, but as a fellow, I remember like, you know, I was shown like an NPM1 stain and there was cytoplasmic localization and Dr. Vardaman was like, what is this? And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And he's like, this is indicative of NPM1 mutation. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. So yeah. 
so we can, you know, bring it back to IHC where we all started. That's pretty amazing. That's really awesome. So do you guys do it regularly at your place, Kama? No, so at Loyola, we don't have NPM one standing now. But at the University of Chicago, I know they had developed it. I actually don't know. I don't want to speak because I'm not there, but I don't know if they do it routinely or not. However, they had at least in research setting, uh, you know, done that and where, you know, mutated NPM1 would cytoplasmically locate, right? Which, which, which you can see actually, interestingly, you can like totally tell. Sometimes obviously it's a little bit difficult, but yeah, NPM1 and IHC, man. How would you yeah, use really that nice. clinically? Would you use that to look for MRD in a, in a core or a clot section? I mean, yeah. not as the, not as your standalone diagnostic modality, but why would you have that in the, why would you have that in the diagnostic lab? I guess, like, I mean, originally it probably was kind of similar to how we have MIC, right? Because it portends like at original diagnosis, it, it can kind of suggest that this might be happening, but you, but it still doesn't replace uh, you know, the diagnosis actually happening from molecular genetics or genetic techniques, right? And so for MRD, I don't think there would be any role, right? Because you, you can't find a one in a trillion cells that would be positive. And so I think it's probably it's probably similar to if the power, if over time people had discovered that it had more kind of sensitivity, it would probably be more rampant, but, but I don't think so. Because ultimately they all go for a panel anyway. So, what? so ha having the stain or not having the stain, I think is not that relevant. What's the frequency of the MPM, MPM1 mutant AML? Like, is it 5% or 2%? No, no, no. 25 to 35% wow. of de novo AML is MPM1 oh. mutated. So, you know, but I, I feel like so in a way, uh, people like Kamran and myself, we are spoiled, right? We work at centers that have molecular labs and can do... But think about, you know, if, if you're in another country that doesn't do molecular, I see it's much easier to do, right? So you can uh, potentially at diagnosis do NPM1 IHC to predict further mutation. And of course, you know, in the, it's just like any other IHC, which I'm sure, Andrew, you're very well aware of because you're uh, the IHC guy. Like when these first come out, they're always 100% sensitive and 100% specific, right? right? It's, it's like always perfect. And then people do other studies and show that it's, you know, it's really not the case. And I think the, the same is true with MPM1. So originally when Dr. Fellini published his New England Journal of Medicine, 2005, the sensitivity and specificity of the stain for, for basically the, the mutant clone for uh, detecting the mutation. Well, it's not a mutant clone, but for detecting the mutation was 100%. Uh, but then actually our group, uh, MD Anderson, and I'm not involved in that study, so no, no um, conflict of interest, but um, they actually did it and it wasn't 100% concordant with mutation status. So they had mutation negative cases that had um, abnormal cytoplasmic staining and vice versa. And it was the same clone of, you know, they, they actually had uh, gotten the antibody from Dr. Fellini. And that study is in cancer. If you want to look it up, I think uh, Sergey Konoplev is either the first author or the, is the first author on the study. Um, and for, for MRD, it's very hard. It's actually not a very easy stain to look at. You know, we're, we're like very look at looking, very used to looking at blue background and yeah. brown, you know, positive. But in this case, normal cells are NPM1 positive. It's just that the localization is to the nucleus, right? Uh, so when you're looking at a bone marrow that's decalcified and then you're trying to find one cell that has cytoplasmic staining, it's, it's not very useful. Uh, 
uh, but I think for baseline, it's it's a good tool if you don't have, um, you know, like rapid or easy access to to molecular studies. And also, it's much quicker than you know NGS turnaround time in most places is around two weeks. Um, I see is what like a few hours. What's a cup like blast? A cup like blast, I will refer you to a tweet of mine a few weeks ago. Well, no, it's, a, it's probably a few months ago. But basically what happens is, and again, it's not specific. I think you see it, you see it in FLT3 mutated AML as well. It's basically, I think, a function of proliferation, like highly proliferative blasts. Uh, but there, the nucleus is um, so prominently indented that it almost looks like a cup or a fish mouth um, from some angles. If you look at it from like the 2D surface, it looks like it has a giant nucleolus. Uh, but if you look at it sideways, it looks like a cup. But and it, it correlates cool, with NPMR. It's very cool to bring up though, because you can impress your patient facing colleagues, right? Because you can almost predict that there will be, you know, I mean, if, if it's not fit three or NPM one, that's like, I know, it's unlikely to be neither, yeah. but you know, you can always say, hey, you know what, it looks like fit three. And, and so at least for a hematopathologist, it's kind of nice because you can tell them two things, right? One is that it doesn't look like APL, which is the other thing that they're looking for. Uh, and then you can say that, well, you know what, it might be mutated for fit three and the next day you get a call and people are very impressed. So there's some job security there, which I like. Most <laughs> of the stuff that I do is just for show. I know, same here, man. I swear. I swear, like, you know, I mean, literally, like, it's like the same as like finding a bar body in like a nucleus in a patient who's male, who's had like a female, like a misgendered, like transplant. And you're like, oh, was the transplant from a woman? And like the team will be like, what? How did you know? And I'm like, because you know what? That's, that's what we do. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I've never had that happen to me. I I have yet to seen a bar body, and with all the patients that you know we get that are post transplant, maybe I'm just not looking hard enough for it. But oh, I can um, so I can tell you that it happened to me twice. Once when it was like I was a fellow, and the attending actually made the the awesome call, and then I spent like years trying to be like, oh my god, I'm going to find it and I'm going to recapitulate this awesomeness, and it's happened once, just once. But that's okay. You know, I mean, I'm still relatively early career. Hopefully it'll happen again. No, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love when you can look at something and, and you know, uh, predict predict the genotype. And uh, I, I'm going to deviate a little bit. I know this is not IHC. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like people forget that morphology is a biomarker. Right. You know, it's, it's just not sexy and it's not fancy, but it is a biomarker. A lot of the times, like, specific morphologic features correlate very tightly with geno, you know, um, gene mutations or genetic uh, aberrations. So it's, it's good to know these things. You know what? It's not a biomarker. It's all the biomarkers. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, the it's biomarker. <laughs> it's the original biomarker. And we're the, algor and we're the algorithm. And right. I mean, it's going to take it's going to take uh, another couple hundred years to deconvolute what's going on. What's going on in here? That's right. I have a happy did story. Did you just change your hat? Oh yeah. When did you change your hat? Like, <laughs> come on. I wish people could see this. You know, we have this thing in Persian weddings. People go to Persian weddings and they change. Like women change from the the wedding ceremony to the party. They change their clothes. So uh, Andrew is like that. Like he changes by topic. He changes his hat. That's right. I'm a man of man of a thousand hats. Awesome. I have something that I need to that I need to say. Uh, like uh, 
compulsion, talking about bar, bar bodies, uh, did, did you know that uh, H3K27 trimethyl, so we use immunohistochemistry for that, it's lost in uh, MPNST, and um, so that, uh, that methylation, that, that mark on, on the histone 3 um, is uh, important for bar, bar body formation. And that's wow. how, so, so, if, so you can do H3K27 trimethyl immunohistochemistry and it paints, it paints the nuclei. They'll be brown, but it paints the bar bodies really, really, really darkly brown. And occasionally we have used that for like, in place of identity testing, trying to suss out a floater. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Clever. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't know if we have that. I'm sure we do, but we, we just don't. I, I've never used it. Now you need now you need it. Yeah. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna order one by mistake on a case and then ask the lab to remove the charges. I'll be like, oh, I ordered this by <laughs> No, I won't do that. And my, my um, pal Jason published all these H3K27 trimethyl papers in MPNST, and he, he's had a really, really very, very smart, clever postdoc, uh, Inga Schaefer, and she published it as a letter in histopathology. But I think actually cool. any, like Frank Ingram would be all, ab all about that. You know, I I, th I always find it so sad that we can't do that. Like all these IHCs on like blood smears, I would love to see stuff. You know, I would just love to be able to see IHC on blood smears. That would be so fun. It would be amazing. Yeah. All right, that's my next. That's my please, next adventure. Please, and if you if you ever patented, can you please put our names in as like little shareholders or whatever? I don't mind if it's not like a major like stock in it, but it would be amazing. Recruit me to Loyola. And I'll work in the blood smear IHC development lab. And <laughs> I, it sounds like a dream to me, man. Dr. Mirza, Dr. Mirza, look what I made. That's awesome. I am That's buying standard. everyone here dinner the day you validate IHC on peripheral blood. Awesome. I swear. Easy peasy. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Here, more than more than I can do glycophorin A. For the one cell we didn't care that much about, but thank you, thank you, we appreciate it though. <laughs> what 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 other mutation specific IFCs do you guys have in the heme world? I guess. I mean, you know, I guess we could like start with them. I mean, let's start with Mick, for example. So, do you? How do you do? You, um, how is it for you? Do you do Mick on all of your uh, basically large B cell lymphomas? Correct. We do. Yeah, same with us. We do as well. And and actually, I I do it on some of the higher grade follicular lymphomas as well. It's not really, um, I guess, part of our algorithm. Uh, but I tend to do it because sometimes, you know, the, the higher grade follicular lymphomas show overexpression or are rearranged. Uh, but basically, um, you know, the again, it's like a screening tool. Uh, right, you use it to to predict whether or not there is MIC rearrangement. Um, but again, it's not very uh, specific or sensitive. So you know, in the in the uh, large B cell lymphoma world, you have the uh, double uh, expressors, which is the MIC uh, overexpressor, and then the BCL2 positive, and then you have the um, double hits. And double hit means genetically rearranged, right? At the chromosomal level. So you have mic rearrangement and then IGH2 um, 
uh, IGH and uh, NBCL2 uh, rearrangement. That's intriguing to uh, me, I'm about the follicular lymphoma. So like technically, let's say your follicular lymphoma is high grade, but it's not DLBCL um, yeah. and you get the MEC, you know, I mean, that automatically becomes double expressor in a way, right? Because if anything, I mean, it has BCL2 and it has MEC. So how do you report yeah. that? You just say follicular lymphoma with MEC rearrangement or something like that? What do you, what do you say? No, so uh, I, I do IHC. I don't do uh, MEC fish Got it. on the... Uh, I think, you know, there are follicular lymphomas that have MIC rearrangement as well, right. but it's it's much lower in incidence. Uh, but, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we do things and we don't necessarily, um, you know, we know it's bad, right. but there's not enough data to show, no. you know, to, to convincingly say that, you know, this patient is going to have a worse outcome. But you know that it's bad. But then I think with time, when you compile enough cases, you mm -hmm. can actually put together something meaningful, right? Oh, I can be and doing. I think, yeah, uh, I mean, and I do, you know, it's like, I don't know, like a high grade mantle cell, lymphoma, like blastoid or pleomorphic mantle cell lymphoma. I always do MIC and P53 IHC on those uh, because more often than not, one of them is apparently expressed. In the pleomorphics, it's usually P53. Uh, is uh, overexpressed, and then in the blastoid ones, it's usually MIC. Uh, but you know, you—I mean—you record the data, and then you learn. And right. I think these are some some you know, they are informative on a case by case basis too. So I don't feel bad for doing it because no, no, I, I know I that it's going to inform management. Right? You know? No, no, I fully agree. I actually think that that's very cool. You know, I mean, I hadn't yeah. thought that much about it, and I think that I should probably start doing that too because I agree with you. I think that you know because. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we, you know, Dr. Kinney, our director of HemePath and I were discussing a case like which looked very plasma plastic. It ended up being just like a DLBCL, but we were just going back and forth and we were like, you know what, this looks, I mean, we need to somehow express to them that this may have a more aggressive clinical cause because of whatever reason. And it was almost like you're looking for like, um, you know, you're looking for almost like a more legitimate thing other than our eyes, which our eyes are fantastic, obviously. And, you know, we can kind of predict, yeah. you know, how things will be bad. But sometimes you do need that legitimacy, like second level evidence yeah. that, you know, things are bad. And so I, I agree with you. I think that it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes of, what I do, go ahead. I was going to say across all of surgical pathology, you know, you, you guys are operating in a siloed heme path world, but this is a pan cancer phenomenon across all of pathology, uh, P53 uh, aberration underlies transformation of low-grade lesions to high-grade lesions. There's lots and lots of uh, examples like transformation or, or de-differentiation de in lots of different types of carcinomas or it's correlated with anaplasia and Wilms tumor. There's a, there's a familiar example for, for Michael. And, and in HemePath, it, it's interesting that MIC, uh, MIC amplification can fulfill the same, the, same, uh, the same function. Yeah, absolutely. So I, so, you know, sometimes I think... So yeah. I do P53 on all my, my high-grade B-cell lymphomas because, of course, this GI pathologist can't, you know, can't keep his hands off of anything. So what's well, the should, most I, common B-cell lymphoma you see? Is it... Burkitt in, in the, um, what do you see in the GI chart? But well, apart from diffuse large VA, I guess. Yeah, no, almost exclusively. Actually, clearly, uh, DLBCL is the most common lymphoma that yeah. I see. 
and then, and then mantle uh, and follicular, and then right? malt, and then malt, uh, yeah. malt lymphomas in the stomach, and oh, and then yeah. everything else is uh, everything else is uncommon. Burkitt Burkitt lymphoma, follicular lymphoma. We see CLL not uncommonly in 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 colons and sigmoid diverticulitis or colon cancer resections. They have CLL nodes. Those don't even really count. <laughs> Yeah, disrespect to the patients, but I'm just talking about it from like the perspective of, you know, uh, yeah, GI involvement. That's cool. So you were talking about earlier about fun tricks to impress your friends. The common lymphoma we see in kids is Burkitt. And one of my fun tricks that I've done a few times now is before we get the touch prep, I will predict that it's Burkitt because the patient is a female and she also has an ovarian or breast mass. Mm-hmm. and that they're like why is that why is that and it's actually it's a it's a little blurb in the who book that it can express prolactin receptor and be gonadotropic and so when you see a patient who's also got a female patient who's got breast or ovarian lesions very high probability it's Burkitt blows people's minds yeah even though the oh, see, i didn't know that Right, I right. did not know that. But that, that, that picture, I think, of breast involvement. Similarly, uh, you know, on that note, like when you see, when, you know, Sanam and I see monocytics, we're like, oh, is the patient, are the patient's gums bleeding? And they'll be like, oh my God, how did you know you didn't see this patient? And I'm like, yep. And there's probably lung infiltration too. And people are like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. I know. I think that, but it's a, it's a very characteristic you know kind of you know kind of like you, you we think of the jaw pictures right sure yes but, you know i mean Endemic. these are those vi- those visuals that kind of e- even as us as pathologists because obviously we're physicians first but we carry an image of our patient that way right and so the, the visual is very striking you know or the beruli ulcer on the on the medial malleolus and like patients with you know sickle cell or whatever like these are the visuals that you know it's just very difficult to kind of shake mike do you do you look at do you look at clinical clinical images in your practice, and how do you how do you use that? Well, I sign out bone and soft tissue, so we always I'm always looking at the radiology for those. Sure. Uh, and GIs, I, I like to look at the endoscopies yeah. too. Yeah, that's, I find I, that's really helpful. I read endoscopy reports, but I often look at I often look at the images from the from the endoscopy. I, the Dermpath colleagues that sign out two you know two two scopes over. They, they look at the clinical, Im- you know, they take the clinical images and they, they, they rely on them to make the, to make the diagnosis. How about, how about in heme path? What, what interest do you have in the clinical, in the clinical image or how would that inform your diagnosis? I mean, the I guess, only things we really would, you know, cutaneous anything lymphoma. that involves the skin. Yeah. yeah like, you know, I, I guess a cutaneous ALCL versus LYP. You know, or I don't know. I don't really, I don't really rely on, you know, the, the clinical image for making uh, the diag. It's, it's not really part of our, I guess, um, algorithms or, but I think that's important, right? Like if the, sometimes it's, you know, you see a tiny biopsy of a lesion under the microscope and it will obviously, you know, like influence my my judgment if they tell me this is a 10 centimeter mass or like a tiny little papule, right. you know? So I, mean, uh, I, oh, yeah. I completely agree with Sanam. I think it's the same that, well, you know, so for example, if our dermpath colleagues show us a case and, you know, they've done like a, the basic kind of triage panel and we're like, okay, this is probably like a pseudo lymphoma. Like it's not lymphoma. I don't want to do any anything else with it. But I will ask them, well, what did the clinician think? 
right? Was it was lymphoma on their differential? If it was, then I may actually choose to do one more layer, you know, where I look at the four and the eight, like, you know, something that I didn't do in the first triage, only because if there's clinical suspicion, nine out of 10 times, it'll be like, lymphoma isn't even on the thing. It'll be like something, something, something versus nub or something, right? A neoplasm of uncertain behavior. Like they put that there, right? And I'm like, well, if because they're very good. If they think that it's lymphoma, then I want to make sure that it's not lymphoma, you know, before I send yeah. it out. So we were talking a little earlier about markers that can be indicative of therapies. And there's been a couple of papers published recently on antibodies that are targeted against fusion proteins and sarcoma. Are you guys familiar? Is there any, I have no idea. Is there any literature on antibodies that target things like the BCR-able fusion? Not BCR. Well, are you talking like therapeutically? Or, well, or in terms of detection. Detection. detection, yeah. Not, not BCR-able, but NPM1-ALK, mm -hmm. right? For us, that's, that's the, like, I guess the poster child of a fusion product that we uh, detect by IHC is because uh, so as you know, ALK is normally not expressed in any, uh, any normal tissue beyond the fetal stage, apart from, I guess, like a, maybe few cells in the brain. Yeah. Uh, but um, so if you see staining, that's very abnormal. And ALK is actually fascinating, right? You, it's one of those things where you can actually predict the, the partner based on the, the pattern it stains and look very smart, it's especially like with the trainees, right? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Like if you see um, the, the cytoplasmic and nuclear staining combined is almost always associated with NPM1 ALK, which is the, the most common fusion form for anaplastic large cell lymphoma ALK positive. Uh, and uh, the small cell variant is usually only nuclear. Uh, and then the other more rare variants can be, um, you know, cytoplasmic, uh, but basically the the fusion product, because of the nuclear localization of the uh, NPM1, you'll get both a nuclear and a, uh, and a cytoplasmic. And then let me think, what else is a fusion product? That, oh, cyclin D1. Um, you know, the, well, okay, so the, it's a little bit more complicated, right? right. I mean, it is, it is a fusion product. And the reason, uh, so normal uh, lymphocytes, right? So we know that histiocytes, and some epithelial cells can be positive. Obviously, endothelial cells have uh, cyclin D1 staining, but normal lymphocytes are negative, uh, are, you know, don't show any staining. Uh, but when you have the translocation where you uh, basically juxtapose cyclin D1 next to the promoter of IGH, you get overexpression, right? Because now it hijacks that, uh, that promoter and uh, it, it's overexpressed. So it's in mantle cell lymphoma or in, you know, I guess, small B-cell lymphomas, if you see strong uh, cyclin D1 expression, it's almost always a mantle cell lymphoma that's cyclin D1 rearranged. Now, there are a few caveats to that. Um, and I learned this the hard way when I was a fellow, as and I will never forget. One is that hairy cell leukemia is cyclin D1 positive, mm -hmm. right? So in, in our world, let's say if you see, I don't know, hairy cell leukemia in the spleen and mantle cell lymphoma can often involve the spleen as well. Uh, and you see cyclin D1 positive, don't just call it mantle cell lymphoma because it's cyclin D1 positive. It can be hairy cell leukemia. Uh, but interestingly, you know, we know that in hairy cell leukemia, the mechanism is not the, the rearrangement. The mechanism of overexpression is not the rearrangement. 
they're they're always you know almost nearly always intact the gene is not translocated it's just uh overexpressed uh the protein is overexpressed uh, and then the other um i guess caveat is in cll um in the proliferation centers uh, especially when you have you know expanded proliferation centers uh, or prominent proliferation centers those cells, the larger cells, the paraimmunoblasts and the prolymphocytes are going to be cyclin D1 positive as well. And it does not mean that it's translocated and it's not mantle cell lymphoma. So that's also a huge, uh, you know, caveat if you're not familiar, because obviously CLL is a CD5 positive B cell lymphoma as well, right? So you don't want them exposed to it. Uh, right, especially for trainees, because you know, I mean, when they're making <laughs> the algorithm, right, where, where they say, oh, okay, CD5 positive B cell lymphoma, so then you do cyclin D1. This is the caveat that they really need, right? Because they're, what they're doing is differentiating CLL, SLL from, uh, from Mantle. And so all of a sudden, like their, their algorithm is rocked a little bit, but, but it's usually not such a huge problem, but you know, as long as they're aware of it. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pan-cancer detour again, again, and then I'm, I'm kind of interested more about the fusion, the fusion-specific immunohistochemistry too, the, the, Cyclin D1 is overexpressed in mantle cell lymphoma because of a, a very common mechanism for the overexpression of an oncoprotein is, is this translocation with promoter swapping and leading to um, massive expression of a protein in a, in a cell that's not normally supposed to be expressing it by juxtaposing it to a, a promoter of a protein that's normally massively expressed, like immunoglobulin in a B, in a in a B cell. B cell. Cyclin D one is a uh, expression is a manifestation of Wnt pathway activation, and Wnt path Wnt is a, you know it's a major cell signaling pathway. So there's there are many. That's the that's the the main explanation for cyclin D one expression in in virtually every other tissue. We see it in epithelia mm -hmm. a lot. Really, it correlates with proliferation in epithelia. So you'll if you have your mantle cell lymphoma and it's involving the GI tract, you're going to see the crypt, the base of the crypts especially, be strongly expressing. It's it's why intranodal. I don't know. Do you guys do intranodal palisading myofibroblastoma, or does that go to the or does that go to the heme path folks? Um, or does that go to the soft tissue folks? That, that has, that has uh, beta-catenin activating mutations and, and cyclin D1 is, is overexpressed in that tumor type. Sounds very soft tissue to me. As well. Yeah, I've never seen one with my own eyes. So. It has amianthoid <laughs> fibers. Um, so I'm really, I'm really interested in, in... So Mike's asking about sl something slightly different. He's asking about uh, IHC that specifically uh, spans the you know spans the fusion or is fusion fusion specific, and and we had published a uh, SS18 SSX uh, fusion specific Im uh, immunostain about six months ago, and was your was it your friend at the NCI that had developed uh, PAX3 or PAX7? Yeah, the, one mutation. There's a recent paper from the NIH yeah. that described. Uh, Anybody to detect any fusion of the PAX3 or 7 to FOX01 in alveolar red sarcoma? Believe it or believe it or not, uh, I guess believe it be, because biomedical <laughs> science is such a massive industry. There's 
everything that you can imagine, except for the one that you're working on, Mike, but almost every reagent, primary antibody that you can imagine has been produced, at least in the polyclonal state, and most of them don't work at all. But I was uh, bumping around as, as, I, as, I, as I often am doing my uh, creative work, and I found there are numerous EWSR1 fly one uh, fusion specific antibodies that have been produced. I've never seen one that's been published in a clinical paper, but I'm, I'm sure that if we tried five of them, that one of them would work. Yeah. I think the issue there is there's so many different yep. exon utilizations at that breakpoint. It's really heterogeneous yep. from tumor to tumor. Can we talk about phosphostat three? Sure, because it's probably one of the most non-specifics, right? It it really just means that there's upright, you know, jackstat pathway uh, activation and phosphostat three phosphorylation. Uh, but I think you know it is um, it is in some ways useful. Um, I never use it uh, in in clinic just because you know again we have our NGS and it's. Uh, rapidly turned around. But let's say in theory, if you were trying to differentiate a myeloproliferative neoplasm from a benign, you know, bone marrow proliferation, maybe you could use that because, you know, as you know, a lot of the myeloproliferative neoplasms have JAKSAT pathway activation. Uh, so if you showed, um, you know, uh, overexpression or uh, positivity for phosphostat 3 then maybe you could predict that. Um, the other is, you know, um, LGL leukemias uh, and NK, you know, not the EBV positive aggressive ones, but the chronic NKs, um, those have STAT3 mutations, STAT5 mutations. So you could potentially uh, use that in that setting. Do you have that in your lab, Cam? No, I, not that I not that I know of. I don't want to speak for like SearchPath if they use it in any particular way, but I've never ordered it here at Loyola. I don't think we have it either now. I, I, Do you guys use it in, in, in pan cancer world? So uh, it has a potential, it has a potential uh, diagnostic application in surgical pathology. The main applications are in heme, are in heme path, but I have, you know, I was reading your, your, your DM before and I saw oh, phosphostat and I wanted, wanted to see where this, where this had gone. Uh, I have an email string from a couple of years ago that includes uh, Eric Shi and yeah. Minazu trying to get trying to get it to work, and uh, and Dennis O'Malley was interested in it as well. Dennis was specifically interested as a as a TLGL uh, yeah. marker, and so I'm so I'm interested in if anybody has it because phosphorus. As a general rule, phospho-specific immunohistochemistry is terrible. Um, I do phospho-specific immunohistochemistry all the time when I'm when I'm being the pathologist for my basic science collaborators. Uh, so, if we want to, and it works great in Western blots, and if we want to demonstrate path, different pathway activations, there's loads of great phospho-specific antibodies, cell signaling has hundreds, hundreds of them and they're, yeah. and they're beautiful, but they only work in these manipulated cell lines. The, the phospho signal is so um, evanescent uh, 
there are endogenous phosphatases. And if there's a minute of cold ischemia time, gone. gone. So for years and years and years, I've been trying to get, I have these basic science collaborators that have the expectation that what they did in a cell in a cell line that I'll be able to demonstrate the clinical correlate in, you know, I have all these TMAs of all different kinds of tumors and the phospho-specific IHC is always flat yeah. negative. But I'm wondering if you guys have more success in heme path, not necessarily in a node, but in a marrow. Because how, how long does it take for, a, you know, you do the core biopsy and I imagine that it's, that it's informal and inst instantaneously. It is, uh, but then it's also, uh, you know, it's yeah. calcified yeah. and, you know, much, much more harshly treated than, uh, than your regular uh, nodal tissue. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, the LGLs, uh, so, you know, speaking of the LGLs, the, the SAT3 mutation is only positive in about 40% of them, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, but. But I think it's good. You know, it's one of those things that I should remember to do when I have the case. But a lot, you know, and a lot of this stems from basically having uh, easy access to flows. You really don't need an IHC to make a diagnosis of LDL leukemia for us. You can do it by flow and by mutation and TCR gene rearrangements, right? So um, it never really gets to that. Like if I can make any diagnosis just using flow, I don't even bother doing IHC anymore just because it's quicker and it gets the case off my desk quicker. Right. Mike, what is that old saying? 40% of the time TLGL is phosphostat three positive a hundred percent of the time. I mean, we can make um, it a thing. <laughs> but I'm telling you, okay. So I will tell you, so what is your favorite? I think we've talked about this before, but what is your favorite IHC that, um, that you, you know you routinely use in in your practice. I'll go first, camera. so nobody else can claim no, it. But mine is two fifty three. Mine is two fifty three for sure. I love it. It saves me, you know, all the time. Mine, I think, is CD thirty. Uh, I think I, I think I've answered this question before, and I actually remember thinking that I, it was Pax five only because I just love nuclear stains in general. Uh, but I think maybe my answer would be CD30. I just love it. I think that uh, I love how it like stains uh, and I love what it means. It, I love what answers it gives me if I if it ends up being positive, right? And so, you know, whether it's looking at Hodgkin or anaplastic and you know, love the fact, you know, love the fact that you can give brintuximab for it. So I think that I, yeah, I think CD30 would probably be my answer. I should, I actually, I'm so inspired by Senem. I should start using P53 more. I don't use it to the same level that she does, but I, but I believe in it. You know, it's kind of the same thing. I should probably think about it and, and, and do it too. But CD30 is my answer. Mike, what's your favorite IHC? That's a good one. I don't know. There's a few that I, I really like because when you get it positive, it really clinches the diagnosis. And so I think the one that helps me the most in really poorly differentiated things is probably FOX2B because when we get a neuroblastoma that's really poorly differentiated, that's sometimes the only thing that's positive and that really bails you out. What is FOX2B? Teach me. It's a nuclear marker that's positive in neuroblasts. In the really poorly differentiated tumors, it's sometimes the only thing that's positive. Even tyrosine hydroxylase is negative in about half of the really poorly differentiated, undifferentiated neuroblastomas. FOX2B is the master regulator of the autonomic nervous system.
So, Ooh. so it's, it's, and, and downstream of that is GATA3 and downstream of that is tyrosine hydroxylase and dobutamine beta hydroxylase. So when FOX2B is expressed by a neural crest cell, um, that tells it to be sympatho, that tells it to be sympathoadrenal and, and neuroblastomas are primitive sympathoadrenal lineage. So FOX2B is also positive in paragangliomas and pheochromocytomas. Although the oh. level of expression in, in neuroblastoma is it, it's knock your socks off positive. Yeah. Just why I think I cannot be more impressed by IHC guy. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously, like honestly, oh. this is amazing. That's awesome. Like su superhuman level, right? <laughs> My favorite. I, I'm oh, not ahead. coming to Montreal with you. You're gonna like. You make everyone look bad. Oh, I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about uh, cow reticulin other than. I, the Cal2 mutation specific immunohistochemistry. It's one oh, immuno that we try that we tried to bring up that was crappy. So did you try it? You know, we actually. Um, so it's funny. We don't have the we don't have the stain. All right, I don't think we do. Um, but I was, you know, Eric C wrote a paper on it. Yeah. He's a senior author on a paper in AJCP, and I contributed one case to that paper, and I I got a paper. So that was really generous of him. Uh, but. Basically, you know, I'm very fascinated by cow reticulin and, and uh, how, how smart the, the mechanism is, right? If you think about it, it has all of these various mutations, right? It has like the most common form is the 52 base pair deletion. And then you have the five base pair insertion. And then you have all the other ones that they call type three, which is basically like not type two and not type one. But they all lead to the same um, mutant protein, which is basically a 36 base pair, uh, you know, amino acid. So it's, to me, I'm like, how, like, biologically, or I guess, pathologically, that is so smart, right? You have all of these various genetic events that all lead to the same end product uh, that causes and, you know, for, I guess, for the trainees, so calreticulin is a mutation in myeloproliferative neoplasms, right? It's not specific. Well, you don't see it in PV, but you see it in um, ET, essential thrombocytemia, and you see it in primary uh, myelofibrosis. Uh, I think when they described it, I don't remember exactly when it was when they described it, but I think it, it, it was right around the time I was a HEMPAS fellow, because I remember doing one of these... Um, you know, journal club WHO conferences on the, the two papers that came out together in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine. But basically before they described cow reticulin, a lot of these myeloproliferative neoplasms, the ETs and uh, PMFs that were JAK2 and MIPL wild type were being called just, um, you know, um, non-JAK2, non-MIPL mutated uh, uh, ET or PMF, and then they discovered this, and it was jackpot, right? Because a, a, a large subset of the Jack to and uh, methyl wild type. I love the word jack. I love the word jackpot. Ironic. It's not, <laughs> it yeah. was jackpot. It's not jack. It's not jackpot. It's jack not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Basically, so you know, there, there, uh, you can actually detect wild type calreticulin by IHC. Uh, and you can, det and there's a mutant specific form that detects the mutant form 
uh, and usually see it in megakaryocytes, right? So in the calreticulin mutated cases, if you stain those, your megakaryocytes are going to show cytoplasmic staining. Um, and the reason for that is, so, you know, why is it in the megakaryocytes? I mean, they did some uh, in dual staining immunofluorescence uh, studies as well and showed that some of the CD34 positive myeloid progenitors or the MPO positive cells were positive as well. And it makes sense because, uh, you know, myeloproliferative neoplasms are stem cell uh, disorders. So theoretically, every, you know, all lineages, all um, cells that derive from the myeloid stem cells are going to be um, mutated. Uh, but why is it preferentially seen in the megakaryocytes is that, um, so the, the mutant form has extreme affinity for MIPL, which is the thrombopoietin receptor, right? So then it goes and binds to MIPL, and that's why you see it preferentially localized to the, the megakaryocytes. Uh, we don't have the IHC, we don't do it, but in the paper that Eric published, uh, it was very specific and very sensitive, basically detects the mutant form and doesn't really react with the wild type cases. I thought Burkitt lymphoma was uh, very, had great affinity for MIPL. I thought a, that was the, was the no, but wasn't that the, the, breast, the breast receptor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they mis they mi they misnamed prolactin uh, receptor. It should have been MIPL instead. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's happened again. You've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC talk. Don't stain like our brothers. Don't stain like my sister. Don't stain like my siblings. Really good to see you all, and it was great having Comron on. Um, looking forward awesome. to the next one. Thanks everyone for joining. Bye. Care, guys. Bye guys. Bye bye. Real soon. Bye guys. Be well. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.